following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we have a rather ambitious chunk of Leviticus we're going to try to bite off. Uh, Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 6.17. And as tempting as it is to read the whole thing, I'm not... Um, you know, one of the issues in the book of Leviticus is there's just a lot of repetition, um, which uh, we're not always necessary to read through. So, but we're going to look uh, this morning. Uh, let me read uh, a little bit of, of chapter four to start with, and then we'll read some more later. But we'll start in chapter four, verse one, and then jump down to verse uh, thirteen. Uh, we're looking this morning, just to give you some context, at two more of the offerings, the sin offering and the guilt offering. So, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done, and does any one of them, it is, uh, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Then we'll jump down to verse uh, 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that, that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood shall pour out at the base of the burnt altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering. So shall he do with uh, this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. All right, a lot of stuff there, and we uh, probably read it, and you're like, wow, this is just so unlike how we worship God today, right? Uh, for so many reasons. Um, and uh, if you've been with us from the beginning, as our third uh, sermon on Leviticus, and we've been looking at the different offerings that worshipers would bring. And uh, there are, in total, five main offerings that a, a person can bring. And so we looked the first Sunday at the burnt offering. Uh, and, and that is, uh, that can be brought, and it was uh, to be burned whole, offered. It was a, a bull or a ram or a goat, and it would be uh, killed and it would be burned whole on the, on the altar. And then last week we looked at the uh, grain offering. And the grain offering was, was uh, offered normally with the burnt offering. They went together. Um, and then we looked thirdly at the uh, fellowship offering or the peace offering. Uh, and so we come, uh, we come uh, this week to the last two, the, the sin offering that we just read about. And then we'll look in a minute at the guilt offering. Uh, what's, what's interesting is uh, when you look at all five of these offerings, three of them have to do with uh, dealing with sin, with making atonement. In fact, in this passage uh, I read, um, it, it says that, that this was, um, uh, in, in, uh, it was uh, the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. That phrase uh, is repeated eight times in these, these chapters, in chapters four, five, and six that we're looking at today. Eight times it talks about this offer, these offerings making atonement um, and bringing forgiveness. Through them, it, they would be forgiven. Uh, but, but this has caused some confusion. 
And, and as we read through it, if you're, uh, and as you kind of try to figure out what, what these offerings mean, it is a little bit confusing. And it, and it may not be confusing to you only, but actually Bible scholars and people who have spent their whole lives researching this stuff are equally confused. Right? So if you're confused about all this, don't feel bad. Uh, you're not alone. Uh, and one of, the, one of the areas of confusion is that uh, this offering that I just read about is called the sin offering. Um, and so it presumably right, has something to do with sin, with dealing with sin. But when you look at the whole, all five of them, actually uh, three of them specifically talk about making atonement, about doing something to deal, to cleanse, to remove, to somehow deal with sin. Uh, so obviously it was a big deal. Uh, but it's confusing about which one was like the right one. Like, how did you know, like if you sin, which of these offerings you were supposed to bring? Which is the most important? Which is the most necessary? Are they all necessary? Do I do them all together? Well, if you were a worshiper in those days, they would sort it out. Um, uh, we're trying to look back and trying to figure it out. And it's a little confusing. And some people would say that, that the main offering for sin was the sin offering. After all, that's what it was called. Right? It would be obvious that that's the main one. And that these other ones were somehow kind of second level. Um, others would say, no, the burnt offering is the main one. And these ones are kind of secondary. And so it's all confusing. And most of us, what we do with all this is like, it's like we're, we get bogged down in Leviticus and all this detail about... Do you throw the blood? Do you splash the blood? Do you pour it here? Do you pour it there? And we're like, you know, I don't have to do that because we, we just don't do that anymore. And it's confusing. And so let's forget the whole thing. Amen? Let's just move on to, you know, something else. Uh, and it's tempting to do that. Uh, but it's God's Word. And uh, these uh, offerings actually were very important not only for them, but they're important for us in understanding really what Jesus has accomplished for us in saving us. And so it's worth it to, to go through this and try to sort out these, uh, these offerings and to figure out which one's most important and what they mean, uh, as tempting as it is just to give up. Right? Uh, because it will help us really understand all that Jesus did for us. Uh, we know, and we'll see towards the end, we'll wrap this up by looking at Jesus who is the fulfillment of all these sacrifices. In his one death on the cross, he uh, accomplished what all these little bits and pieces were trying to uh, accomplish imperfectly. Um, so, so it is important for us to understand these. And one of the problems that, that we encounter here is that sin is not just one-dimensional. Uh, sin actually impacts and affects our lives at many, many levels. And part of our problem in, in sorting out all this is that we oftentimes fail to see the, the wide range of effects that sin has both in our own life as well as in our relationship with God and in our, in our relationship with each other. And so it's, it's really easy to collapse the solution for sin into an oversimplistic picture of what's necessary to gain forgiveness. And the result is that oftentimes we make Jesus' death uh, woefully insufficient or cheap or trivial or uh, shallow. But the more we can understand all that sin does and its many layers of effect in our life, and we see what was required to remove all the, all the effect, it will help us better understand uh, what Jesus did. But there's a more practical point too. Not only is it theological, and, and we'll talk a little bit about theology, but it's also practical. And uh, uh, the, one of the offerings, the second offering we're going to talk about is called the guilt offering. Uh, but to add confusion to all of this, in the sin offering, it talks about our guilt. Right? And actually, all of these, all of our sin incurs for us guilt. And uh, Guilt is, um, is a good thing, but it's not a fun thing. Does anybody here enjoy feeling, feeling guilty? Right? Well, you're not supposed to enjoy it. And guilt uh, is is pain for the soul that causes us to change. Right? That's one of the good purposes or functions of guilt. So it's a, it's a lot like pain for our body. And God designed pain for our bodies to protect us. And so we know that if you get too close to something really hot, it burns. 
And the result of that is what do we do? Do we, we, we stay away from things that are super hot or that could burn us? We, we learn that one very quickly. Um, and so it protects us. Well, guilt has the same function. Uh, and guilt actually uh, is two things. Guilt, first of all, is a state or condition. It's a fact. Uh, if you have done something wrong, uh, you are guilty, whether or not proven in a court of law or not. If you've broken the law in some way, uh, you are under a state or condition of guilt. Right? Guilt is the fact of having done something wrong. But guilt is also the sense or feeling that we know we've failed God. We know there's something not right about our life, and it makes us feel inwardly uncomfortable or worse sometimes. And we feel the, the weight of guilt. Uh, and um, it's a good thing, but it's also a tricky thing. Uh, and, and so guilt should, should move us to deal with the problem, to avoid sin and to find forgiveness. And that's the only cure for, for, for guilt, is we need to come to a place of receiving and experiencing forgiveness. Uh, so we're going to talk about that this morning as well. How is it that we deal with, with guilt? How is it we come to find healing and forgiveness? Um, I think we live in a day and an age where we don't like to talk to, about sin a lot. And so consequently, we don't often talk about guilt. And uh, there's this idea that, well, if you just ignore it, it will go away. And uh, to some level, that can work, but it can have devastating consequences. Just like ignoring pain can have devastating consequences. Many years ago, I was a track coach, and I uh, started a cross-country program at our high school and loved coaching track, loved running back then in that day. And I had one athlete, and uh, it was, it was going to be a good year. We were going to have a, a really good team, and my top runner was just really good. And I was optimistic about we were going to do big things this year. We're going to go far. And uh, about I think it was the third meet of the season, get the team out there, and um, gun goes off, and my runners take off, and my top runner, he's out in front, and he's leading in the top, top five through most of the race. And I'm, I'm getting excited. I can just see all the glory of how this season is going to go on the heels of this really good, good runner. And he's coming into the, the finish line, and we're watching as he's got probably not even half a mile to go, and he's just cruising. And he's picking people off still and thinking, yeah, go, this is going to be good. And boom, all of a sudden he pulls up and, and almost t- goes to a walk. And the last half mile takes him forever as he's like hobbling along to the finish line. Kiss across the finish line, and he's like, not fifth place, he's like in, you know, 50th place. Like, Jesse, what happened? I don't know, but man, my leg really hurts. So he sent him to the doctor. They take an x-ray. He broke his leg. Broke his leg running. Snapped it right in two. And amazingly finished on a broken leg. How's that for impressive, right? Um, Come to find out, all up to that race, he'd been dealing with severe shin pain, which he never told me about. And he just, I mean, he was the kind of guy who was just tough as nails and could do that. He just said, oh, you know, I'm, I'll just ignore it. Just ignore it. Well, it turned out to be devastating. That was the end of cross country for him, the end of my season for all of us, right? It was not the same after that. Right? It doesn't pay to ignore guilt. It's important. And it, it, it has an important function in our life. And just like physical pain, guilt helps us... Um, be in a right relationship with God. Uh, but of course, there's a bad side to guilt, uh, to guilt as well, just like there's a bad side to pain. Uh, there is pain that warns of something you need to deal with right away. But there's also pain that's the residual effect of wounds that happened a long time ago. If you're older like me, every morning you know this kind of pain, right? In the morning I get up and all kind of stuff hurts and aches. And it's not because anything's damaged now, Right? I'm feeling the effects of injuries and wounds from a long, long time ago that are haunting me. And um, that kind of pain is not helpful. In fact, it's it's a pain in the neck kind of pain, right? It's a pain I don't need. Guilt can also be that way. Guilt can be the memory of things that happened a long time ago that have been dealt with, that they've been healing, but there's this residual sense of 
of you should do something about that. Right? Well, as we look at this passage today, hopefully we can see the, the healthy way to deal with pain as well as the unhealthy way, how we, with, with the, the pain of guilt. Right? So uh, we're going to look at these two offerings, but we need to review a little bit. Uh, the, there are basically three main offerings dealing with sin, and they, de- they deal with three different components or aspects of sin. And that's what we're looking at. We looked at the burnt offering. And uh, we're not going to talk about it, but just review quickly. The burnt offering is actually the most important. And it was the one that was done first because it dealt with the most uh, serious effect of sin. And what the most serious effect of sin was, was this. Uh, the wages of sin is death, right? The wages of sin is death. The most immediate, urgent, and serious consequence of sin is that we fall under God's judgment or wrath. We don't like to talk about God's wrath, but it's his right response to sin, and it's a death sentence, right? And so it was important that you dealt with that one first, because if you didn't deal with that one, you weren't alive to deal with the rest, right? So it was important to deal with this one. And the burnt offering did that by giving a substitute for your life. And remember, we talked about atonement and the burnt offering being a picture of ransom, that your life was under a death sentence, and that a substitute took your place and took your death penalty for you. And it's your surrogate, your substitute. And in a sense, you died through that offering. And so your life was spared. And so you could live to deal with the other effects of sin. Right? So that really was the main offering for sin. And it's why it was required morning and evening. And most of the time when a worshiper would come into the temple to worship, the first thing they would do is offer a burnt offering to uh, make atonement to ransom their life that was under a death sentence. But there was more. There was more to sin. There was more effects of sin and more consequences that had to be dealt with. And so given specific circumstances, and unlike the the burnt offering that was offered kind of generically and as a free will offering, there were times when uh, these two other sin offerings had to be made. And the first one was called a sin offering. And part of the confusion is its name. because it's called the sin offering, uh, it, it, it confuses because it makes the, the burnt offering seem like it's not a sin offering. But all three of these are a kind of sin offering. But this sin offering was focused on a specific aspect of sin, and that was uh, the pollution or filth or contamination that sin brought to us. Right? So uh, some people call it a purification offering or a purification from sin offering. Uh, because its function really was a cleansing effect. And it really illustrates that sin not only causes us to come under a death penalty, uh, to fall under God's wrath, but it also contaminates us. And even in our own culture and language, we talk about um, sin having this effect of being dirty. And uh, maybe you felt this way, that you've, you've done something uh, sinful, and you, and you talk about it, it makes me feel dirty. And I've had people say that to me, I feel so dirty because I fell into that sin or I did this thing that I know was wrong. Uh, one of the best pictures of this is in uh, Shakespeare's play uh, Lady Macbeth or Macbeth. Anybody read Macbeth lately? I mean, not lately, but uh, it's good. And there's good theology. Actually, Shakespeare uh, does it pretty well. Well, just to review a little bit, uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, husband and wife, conspired to kill King Duncan. Uh, and at first... Uh, Macbeth himself is, is very guilty, feels terribly guilty. Um, uh, but Lady Macbeth kind of mocks his guilt because at the time she's a little more hard-hearted and cold than, than her husband. Um, uh, and Macbeth said that even the ocean couldn't wash his hands clean of Duncan's blood. There's a sense that his hands were contaminated with, with the the blood of of, of King Duncan that he had killed. Uh, And Lady Macbeth, who scorned him then, uh, in time, as the play unfolds, finds that that same blood is dyed into her conscience. And she goes around constantly trying to wash her hands, constantly rubbing them and scrubbing them and trying to clean them. And uh, she can't get rid of the stain that's on her hands and in her conscience. And then the, the play goes on from there. You need to go reread. Apparently, all, we all need to review and reread Macbeth. There's a sense that that's what sin does. Sin is contaminating. 
it, it makes us dirty and filthy um, and, and in need of washing. And that's true. Uh, and, and we kind of get a sense for what that does to us internally, right? That sin contaminates our life. It makes us dirty. It, it brings a, a filth or a pollution into our life. But for the Israelites, that would have been true. They certainly would have thought of sin in those terms. But they would have also thought of it in terms of bringing contamination not only to them personally, but to the place where they were. So in the Old Testament, God talks about spewing out the Canaanites because they had polluted the land of Canaan. And later, much later, when the Israelites moved in and they, they, they did clean out the Canaanites and they redeemed the land, they brought God's holiness to the land. But as they also sinned and didn't follow God, God talks about spewing them out of his mouth, out of the land, because they had contaminated it. Right? So there's a sense that, that, that sin doesn't only just contaminate our own lives, but it contaminate, contaminates, it pollutes the place where we are. Right? So the whole world is under a curse of sin, and in some sense is contaminated by its effects. Um, and we see this in relationships. When we sin, it only affects God and ourselves personally, but we do affect the relationships that we are in. And we contaminate those relationships. And ultimately, we do contaminate uh, our relationship with God. So, so sin needs to be cleansed. Right? Not only do we need to be ransomed, as our, our life needs, needs to be ransomed, but, but sin, sin needs to be cleansed. And this uh, fourth offering, the sin offering, was really intended to do that. It was a picture of the cleansing that had to be done to remove the stain and the lingering effects of sin that pollute and contaminate our life. Um, it's quite a long chapter. Like I said, I didn't read all of it. Um, I encourage you to go home and read through. Uh, the, the description of this offering actually goes all the way through uh, chap- verse 13 of chapter 5. And it lists five different kinds. Of, we're not going to go through them. It's a lot of detail. It would kill us all off and most of you would fall asleep and I don't want to do that to you. So we, we'll, we'll just summarize this. Two things you need to know about this offering. One, unlike all the other offerings, um, if you offered the burnt offering, uh, there were some options about what you could offer. And you could choose, right, depending on your economic status or how, how big you felt your sin was, perhaps. You could choose the offering. But in this, in this one, the offerings were very set and prescribed. Uh, if you were a priest... You had to provide a bull. If, if it was the whole congregation, the whole nation's sin, they had to provide a bull. If, on the other hand, it was a leader, they could bring a goat. If it was just a common individual person, they could bring a lamb. If you were poor, you could bring either uh, a dove or a pigeon. And if you were super poor, you could bring a grain offering. Um, second thing that was significant about this offering was where the cleansing took place. For the priest and the whole assembly, they went actually inside the tabernacle and the blood was sprinkled before the veil. But for a leader or for just a common person or a poor person, the cleansing was done at the altar. So what does all that mean? Um, well, it means that the, the, there are degrees of sin. Right? Um, now, we, we kind of know this, right? We kind of know there's degrees of sin. And in our own minds... We've gotten pretty good at ranking sin, right? Uh, this week, how many of you have done, like, the worst possible sin ever? Anybody? Because <laughs> nobody's going to admit that one, right? Like, what is the worst possible sin ever? Well, we might think of things like what? Murder? Like adultery? I don't know. We, we kind of have our list of those things that, like, at the very top. But if I were to ask you, how many of you this week have, have committed kind of, like, Little, 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 tiny sins. Anybody? Nobody's going to admit that one either. Wow, you guys are holy. Way to go. Well, I've, I've committed some, like, tiny sins, little sins. You know, like a little white lie, right? Or just a little uh, evil thought that crosses through your mind when that person cuts you off and you want to ram your truck through their car and into the ditch. You know? <laughs> I have no anger issues. Right, but I didn't act on that. Right, little things, little things. That little quirk, that little jab you gave to your wife, your husband. That little—it's just satire, right? I didn't really mean it, even though it made them feel really bad. Right? Little sins, right? 
Um, we have the sense of degrees of sin. Uh, well, God does too, actually. God also does not look at all sin equally. Now, all sin is sin. And as we will see, all sin is contaminating and polluting. But the reality is that they're not equally contaminating, equally polluting, or equally uh, sinful, right? equally uh, the same. But what's interesting, and we won't go into all the theology of it, but what's interesting as I look through this is that I think God's list of the degrees of sin is very different than our, our list. Our list, And as we go through Leviticus, we'll see some of that uh, carried out. Uh, for example, which do you think would be more, more serious? Gathering firewood on the Sabbath or killing somebody? Okay, how many say gathering firewood on the Sabbath would be more serious? Okay, how many say killing somebody? Okay, how many are just not going to even get in the middle of that one? <laughs> Most of you, right? Interestingly enough in Scripture... Uh, not long after this, we'll see this soon, one day a guy goes out on the Sabbath and he collects wood. And the penalty for him is death. Right? Now, the penalty for all sin is death. But guess what? This guy is not given the option of ransoming his life through a burnt offering. He must pay with his life for that sin. But later on, it talks about uh, different crimes. And one of them, it talks about his murder. And it says if two people get in a fight and... They're, they're in a quarrel and one of them, just his rage overtakes him and he strikes the other guy and he hits him so hard he kills him. It's a sin. It's a crime. But that sin can be redeemed. In fact, it says he can go to a city of refuge and he can find shelter and protection. That sin is not as serious as gathering firewood on the Sabbath. What's the difference? Well, uh, clearly God has a different way of judging this than I do. And we tend to judge uh, sin based on its human impact and how it affects me. It's like, yes, yeah, some poor guy died. That's got to be more serious than firewood. Who cares about firewood, right? Is firewood really more important than people? But see, God doesn't value sin or judge it or set its degree based on human impact. That's how we judge sin. Um, in this passage, over and over again, it talks about unintentional sins. If anyone sins unintentionally, and it's a tricky concept because, like, is there any such thing as sinning accidentally? Like, what does that look like? Can you sin accidentally? Well, of course you can if you didn't know something was a sin. But that's not really what it's talking about here. I mean, it's partly that. It's possible that somebody does something inadvert- so inadvertently that they sin accidentally. But that's not the extent of it. Really what it's talking about here is a sin that's not premeditated and blatantly defiant. So the problem with the guy who went out and collected firewood is that he sinned intentionally. He was blatantly defiant of God's commands and laws. He said, I know God said we're not supposed to get firewood on the Sabbath, but I don't really care. I'm going to do it anyway because I don't respect God or his commands. And that's very different than a person who in a heat of rage and in his human weakness lashes out somebody and kills somebody. Right? It's a horrible sin. But God judges the intentions of the heart. And when it's premeditated, when it's preplanned, and when it's blatantly defying God, for God, that, that, ups, that ups it a lot. Right? That ups it a lot. Um, but whatever the case, whatever the case, Sin contaminates the person. And sometimes that contamination can spread very far. And so if it was a priest, for example, uh, the priest, if he sinned, it was extremely serious. And the reason was because he stood before God as a representative of all the people. So no matter how unintentional, no matter how small, how petty his sin, when the priest sinned, uh, it contaminated him, and as, as the representative of all the people, when he went into God's presence, he brought that filth, that contamination and pollution, into the holy place. And so the, the, the priest may have committed a very, very minor sin, but when he, when he sins, it pollutes the whole, the whole people because he is their representative. So he had to pay for his sin with a bull. Not because the sin was so severe, but because its polluting effect was so widespread. 
Okay, so what's the application for us? Well, the application is this. You know, uh, when you sin, it affects you, but it can affect other people. And the scope of that kind of depends on, on who you are and where you are in life. Uh, maybe it's, it's a sin that pollutes just you and your, your spouse, or it just affects you in a relationship with a close friend. But sometimes if you're, if you're in positions of leadership, if you have influence on a bigger scale, it, it can contaminate and cast its net of filth pretty wide, right? pretty broad. And so that's why the New Testament warns teachers and elders and leaders to be very careful. Right? They uh, incur stricter judgment, the Bible says. Why? Because the effect of their sin covers more people. Um, so that's one thing we take away from this is that sin's not equal and its effect um, is sometimes surprising right it's sometimes surprising and sometimes even just your little sin uh, when you do it from a position of influence or leadership or authority uh, can have effects over a lot of people Um, and we got to be careful but the flip side is also true. The other thing we see in this, this passage is that from priest to, to pauper, from the highest position of spiritual leadership in the country down to the poorest of the poorest of the poor, there is a means for every one of them to find forgiveness. Right? So this is kind of good news. First of all, it's interesting that God didn't expect his priest to be perfect. Right? God never said... Well, if the priest sins, oh, wait, no, that could never happen. <laughs> he said, no, if the priest sins, and they will, right? There's this expectation that even the priest is human and will fall and fail. Even Israel's leaders will, are human, they will fall and fail. Uh, preachers will fall and fail. Believe me, I sin, right? Don't put me up on a pedestal, because believe me, I sin. Our elders... We, we, we did not appoint Tim as an elder because he's promised that from here on out, forever and ever, he will never again sin. <laughs> okay. this, that, that's not the expectation. And if that's what leadership required, none of us could lead. Right? The good news is that, that leaders fall, leaders fail, and it pollutes and it creates a mess. And it can sometimes create mess across whole organizations, across churches. But there is hope for cleansing and and forgiveness. There is an offering for that. There is a sacrifice for that. There is a way it can be cleansed. Um, Of course, the sacrifice is, is, uh, in, in every case except for the poorest of the poor, there was a case where a person could be so poor they couldn't even afford the two pigeons. That's pretty poor. And they could substitute uh, a grain offering, uh, a little handful of flour. Uh, what that also means is that there, from the highest to the lowest, even at the lowest, there is provision. There is a means, right? And in all, all cases, but the, the poorest of the poor, it was blood. Right? It took blood. There was something cleansing about blood. And I don't know what that is. I don't know how it works. And Scripture doesn't explain it real well. But there's something cleansing about the sacrificial blood of that animal. And as it came into the temple, as they brought it and they smeared it on the altars of the, in, uh, uh, of the corners of the altar, there was a sprinkle before the tent. It was cleansing. And it cleansed not only the person, but it cleansed the place. It cleaned up the mess. It, it purified things. Right? Um, one of the effects of guilt is that we, we sense that we are dirty, that we're filthy. Okay? And there is, there is an offering, there is a way that that can be washed and cleansed. Okay? So that's what the, the, sin, the sin offering was about. Uh, it's making a different kind of atonement. It's not ransoming our life from death, but it is cleansing us from all the junk and filth of sin. Um, and it's done by the blood. Um, then there's the guilt offering. Guilt offering, it's a little shorter and a little more concise and to the point. Uh, and let me just read, uh, again, not all of it, but uh, chapter 5, verse 14 says this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith 
and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation. The key word here is compensation. A ram without blemish out of the flock, valued, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the, of the sanctuary, sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and, make, and give it to the priests. Right? Um, jump down to verse 6. If, if the Lord said, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of a deposit of security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any, in any and all of these things that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he had took by robbery or what he got by oppression or, or the deposit that was committed to him or lost or the thing lost that he has found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him uh, to whom it belongs on the day he realizes, realizes his guilt. Okay, the guilt offering is ultimately an offering of restitution. Um, sin is also, and this is the third picture of sin, sin is a debt. Right? Sin is a debt. And the New Testament talks about Jesus paying our debt. And there is a sense in which sin is a, is a debt. It's something we owe. And it's easiest to see this, and it's kind of put in reverse order. It talks in the first section about the debt that we owe to God. And this is a little harder because um, we, we don't, in a tangible way, ever rob something from God, right? We can't go into heaven and sneak into some treasure chest and take some diamond and bring it back. You know, we can't do that, right? Uh, but it's easier to picture this in human terms because we can do that in human terms. And oftentimes when we sin by robbery or cheating or stealing or lying, uh, we, we're, we're, we're stealing, we're, we're causing loss to another person. Um, an easy example of this is somebody is out driving drunk and they uh, can't control their car and they shouldn't have been drinking and they for sure should not be driving and they plow into your car. Maybe you're not even driving, maybe it's just parked and they plow into it and just destroy your car, Right? Is that a little sin or is that a big sin? Well, in my book, that's a big sin, right? Because it costs something, right? And I've got to get my car fixed. And who's going to pay for that? Well, I want the, the drunk guy to pay for it, right? That's, that's part of what sin does. It, it damages, it, it robs, it takes away value. And we see that in human terms. So he talks about this whole list of stealing and and by the way, this list is, is the only one in all of these uh, sins that doesn't talk about an unintentional sin. Because it's hard to uh, you know, imagine that you unintentionally stole something from somebody or lied, right? Um, and the good news in this is that there is even covering for intentional sins. Right? Not just unintentional, but even when we're pretty defiant about it. We're kind of right out there. Uh, there there's a way for cleansing and redemption and atonement. Um, but we see this picture, and, 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 and in this offering, two things have to happen. First, you need to pay back what you owe. And so in the first offering, it talks about bringing a, a ram. Uh, and this is the only offering where you can't, you can't substitute something cheaper if you're poor. Right? If you are guilty against God uh, in the crimes listed here, and it requires this kind of offering, no matter how poor you are, you have to bring a ram, and it has to be valued according to the, t the shekel. It has to be given a monetary value. And the reason is that this offering is making restitution. It is paying back what you have, in a sense, stolen from God. In addition, if, if the sin was against your neighbor, uh, you have to make restitution by actually paying back what you stole from him, Right? And that has to be done before you bring the offering. So when the person realizes their guilt, right? And again, this is where guilt comes in. This is, this is the gift of guilt. When a person realizes their guilt, uh, that in some translations and some scholars would translate it, when they feel their guilt, 
Like, so you did something. You cheated somebody out of something and they didn't even know about it, right? You stole money from them and they didn't even know. And like Lady Macbeth, you're cruising along pretty good for a while. But guilt starts to do its thing. And you start to feel bad, right? And there's, there's this gnawing thing that, oh, what a bad person you are. You ripped them off. And guilt causes that inward turmoil and pain. It says when you realize this is guilt, the first thing you need to do is you need to pay back what you owe. You need to make restitution. So if you stole 100 bucks, you need to give back 100 bucks plus 20%. Right? 20%. You're making restitution. Right? And then, once you've paid back, once you've made it right with that other person, then you bring an offering, a ram, to the Lord and you offer it and you pay back what you owe to God. And there's this picture that even when we sin against our brother, we also have sinned against God and we owe him. Right? We, need to, we need to make it right. And so we confess that sin. We confess it to the person we've wronged and we confess it to God. And we make restitution. And we pay the debts. And the idea here is that the animal is worth something. And so when it's killed, the value of that animal is, is, is paying back the debt that we owe God. So those are the two offerings. Um, of course, we don't do that anymore, and we know that Jesus, uh, Jesus, um, in his death on the cross, perfectly fulfilled all these offerings and sacrifices. Um, so first off, uh, Jesus uh, cleanses us from sin, right? The blood of Jesus is cleansing, and through it we receive forgiveness, and as I said, it says that eight times in this passage that by making atonement, the, the worshiper is forgiven. And forgiven refers to an action by an offended party to remove the offense from consideration. And we're forgiven. We're forgiven because Jesus cleanses us from sin. Revelation 7.14 says this, uh, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and, they, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But Hebrews 9, 12 through 14 puts it this way. Jesus entered once for all into the holy place, not by, by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled, defiled person, right, there's that word, that dirty person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Right, so... Uh, Jesus is our ransom, but Jesus is also our purification. Right? Uh, we are cleansed from sin by his blood. Uh, secondly, Jesus also is our restitution. Now this one gets a little tricky because Jesus pays the debt of sin we owe to God fully. Right? So we don't need to, we, and this is important, we don't need to in any way pay for our sin before God. Right? And one of the things that guilt wants to do for us, uh, guilt should cause us to confess and to uh, find cleansing and to appropriate the price that Jesus paid. Uh, but where guilt can get us in trouble is when it makes us want to pay the debt as well. Jesus paid it in full. He paid the debt in full. So we don't need to uh, cleanse our, our guilt, deal with our guilt, by paying some offering or price to, to God. Okay? So when we give an offering on Sunday morning, it's not a guilt offering. Right? We don't give money saying, well, God, I sinned against you and I'm, I'm paying back. Um, that would be Buddhism, by the way. Right? Tom Boone is paying for that debt. Uh, this last week, uh, about once a month, I, I get to go to Bangkok Hospital and teach nurses there how to deal with um, what they would call crazy foreigners. 
right? So, so, so if you're one of those crazy foreigners, I'm trying to help the nursing staff there. Um, and my specific, my specific class is on the topic of death and dying from a Christian perspective, right? If a Christian, if somebody from the West, a Christian's dying, what does it mean to them? So it's a great opportunity because every month I get to go in and tell them the gospel. Uh, it's, it's awesome. And so I was there this last week, and one of the nurses um, had a question. She said, okay, so, you know, she kind of was understanding what I was talking about. And she said, so, like, if a Buddhist patient is dying, we will call a monk to come in, and the monk will chant over them, and then he will give them an opportunity to do something good, to make merit one last time. Why is that? Well, because they know that they, they are not forgiven, Right? And, the, and the only way that they can deal with all of their sin is to try to do one more good deed before they die. So the monk shows up so they can give him some money or give him some food or, you know, make merit. And she says, so, so what do you Christians do? Like, how do you do that? And I said, no, we don't, we, don't, we don't have to make merit, right? We don't have to do something good. What we need is to just receive forgiveness, because Jesus has paid the debt fully. Right? I don't think she got it, um, but I tried, right? Because it's so foreign. But, but we, when we go to our deathbed, we're not trying to do one last good deed to try to cover all the bad. It's covered by Jesus. It's covered. Right? He paid the debt. Um, but here's the other thing about this offering. New Testament is very clear that, that, that we do not pay a debt to God, but, but we are expected to pay our debt to each other. Right? Uh, just because Jesus has forgiven us doesn't mean we don't need to try to make restitution when we've sinned against our brother. Jesus said if you bring a gift to the temple and you realize that your, your brother has something against you, you've offended him some way, he says leave the, leave the gift and go and restore that relationship. Right? So... Even though we are forgiven and our guilt should be washed away, our guilt is not going to be dealt with until we restore the human side of the relationship as well. And that oftentimes requires making some kind of offering, right? Uh, husbands know how this works with their wife, right? We know when we've offended them, we, we may need to make a peace offering. And 20% over may not be enough, right? It may require more. I'll let you sort that out, right? Um, and that's how human relationships work, right? And this doesn't exempt us from restoring things on a human level. Another confession, this is more on a negative side from my life, uh, several uh, months ago, um, dealing with some of our staff and people I'm responsible for. And uh, this one person was just being very irresponsible, and I was getting very frustrated with it. And instead of being patient and, and dealing with it in a, in a godly way, I, I just ripped this person in an email. And to make matters worse, it, you know, it wasn't just them. It was a group email. So, you know, I, I just really made this person look bad, uh, not just themselves, but in front of all kinds of other people, right? And, um, you know, I, I damaged that relationship. And there's a sense in which I, I robbed from him something. That wasn't financial, uh, but I took away uh, re- reputation and honor and made him, him look bad before his friends, right? And uh, so guilt kicks in. You know, I felt bad. And, uh, you know, I can pray for forgiveness and God, God covers it, right? My debt to, G- uh, to him is paid through the blood of Christ. But I needed to restore that relationship with that person, right? And uh, as I said, you know, sin contaminates sometimes at a pretty wide area. And so, um, so I took that same group email Instead of just talking with him one one, I took the same group email and in a public way, I confessed and, and, and pled for his forgiveness and mercy to that whole group, right? I needed to restore that relationship at that level. Right? We, need to, we need to take steps, right? Jesus forgives, but we must also uh, make restitution where, where we need to. Um, <clears throat> let me just close with this last thought. Um, uh, guilt should cause us to uh, to deal with sin. Right? 
Um, sometimes I think we, we take sin too casually. And what's interesting, when you look through these lists of unintentional sins, some of them were very small. And, and you know, because we have a different list of what's the worst kind of sin than God does, oftentimes I, th- I think we're off. Um, maybe we need a more active sense of guilt of, of bringing to awareness the ways that our life offends God and, and contaminates our relationship with him. Um, but, but we shouldn't beat ourselves up either. And God has made a way in Jesus to have, uh, to appropriate forgiveness, right? To have our sins forgiven. And he sums it up uh, in John, 1 John 1, 9 and 10. We know this verse. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's a great summary of these two, two sacrifices, these two offerings for a believer. If we say we have no sin, um, because I didn't kill anybody this week, right? Because I didn't commit adultery. What I see is the big sins. And we say, I'm pretty good. Say, I have no sin. We're probably missing a lot of the little sins, uh, those unintentional sins that, that we don't take seriously. And it was expensive. Like in the Old Testament, if the, if the priest committed the smallest sin, the price was a bull, the most expensive sacrifice. For us, no matter how small the sin, the price was Jesus' blood. The price is always Jesus' blood. So there's no such thing as a sin so small, we don't have to deal with it. Right? It all needs cleansing. But the good news is, Jesus is ready. Right? It is available for us if we will just confess our sins um, and seek the blood of Jesus to cleanse us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.